I'd just like to say a welcome to everyone. Welcome to our 12th annual YBC. I hope you've come with a purpose. We have a purpose, and it's much bigger than ourselves. Uh, but this week, as we have in the past, we are endeavoring to build up the body of Christ, which is uh, what I trust you are a part of. If you've come to learn and to seek, and maybe you even came this week and you're not a part of that body. Maybe you've just grown up in a church and you've never made a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his people, but I trust you'll have an opportunity this week to do that. Get your life right with God. But I trust you've come to learn about God and about his ways and to apply yourself in your youth to the things of God. And we've set aside this week and you've set it aside to, uh, to engage in those things and to seek after God. So I trust by the grace of God you'll be blessed for having been here. That you'll receive and be strengthened in your faith. I do trust that having gathered from many different places, you can be an edification one to another. A lot of fellowship takes place, not just sitting here listening to the preaching, but also as you uh, visit at your break times and over lunch and in your prayer rooms and bear one another's burdens and encourage, exhort, speak about the good things of God. Uh, speak about your visions. Uh, speak about what God has done in your life. And all those good things can edify one another and strengthen us in our walk. And that's also part of our purpose here this week is for you to exhort, admonish, and strengthen one another. Well, our topic this morning is a glorious church. And I'll get into the message here. I'd like for you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5 where we find that um, phrase. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, we're breaking in here in a section where 
the apostle is teaching about uh, marriage and about uh, the relationship between a husband and a wife, and he says that it's like unto Christ and the church. And maybe we really need to read several verses here. Let's begin in verse 25, where he says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. The washing of water by a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So we've picked out this phrase, a glorious church, because it, it captures in a phrase what Christ wants for us, for his people. So what is a glorious church? Well, that's what we want to consider this morning. And it's a topic much bigger than we can cover in an hour's time. And perhaps as you consider this title, you might even think to yourself, well, I wish I'd know what it was, or I wish I could experience something like that. Maybe you're saying, well, the church that I have doesn't seem all that glorious. Or maybe you don't even have a church. But what is a glorious church? Now, there are many ways we could describe it, and as I said, we won't nearly be able to cover it, but I, as I studied this, I realized that, wow, we're getting right down to the meat here in the first session on Monday morning, because this is foundational. If I would use an illustration, the uh, story is told of a man who was walking through town and he came upon a building site and found some of the workmen there and he questioned them what they're doing. And the first man said he's, uh, he's just working here and carrying uh, the materials. The second man would say, well, he's laying bricks. And when the third man was asked what he's doing, he said, well, we're building a cathedral. And we can identify with the third man who had a vision. In other words, he saw beyond just what he was doing at the moment, and he had a picture of what they were trying to accomplish. Well, I, I would like for us to have a vision of what we're trying to accomplish when we talk about the church or having church or being a church. But I also recognize we need to go a bit farther than just having a vision because the man who's building a cathedral, which we might think of as a large architectural wonder, he must do it according to the blueprint. He's got to have more than just a vision and an excitement about building. Because if he goes at it after his own imagination and fashionings, it will not turn out what was originally intended. And so 
As we look at here at a glorious church, I would like to this morning look at some of the framework, some of the basic principles about a church that we need to have fixed in our mind if we're going to have it turn out right. We'll need to understand a bit of God's vision for a church and try to align our experience with that. There are plenty of groups of people who have assembled in the name of a church who have come to ruin and failure. They've made shipwreck, and that's sad. But it is a reality we have to come to grips with. How is a church to be built? Well, I have a number of points here, and the first one, first several points have to do with, with the structure, what God is, uh, is looking for in terms of structure. And the first point I have is that a glorious church is a a unit. The New Testament calls it, uh, uses the term church, and the Greek word is ekklesia. But it is a group of people who have gathered together for a common purpose. Now, it's not just an ordinary purpose, but this group, God's words for it are a flock. Or a church, which in some cases in the original has the idea of a small flock. God also uses the term a body. He uses the term of it being a temple, as in a building. And he talks about uh, laboring and working as workmen on a building both our part in it and God's part in it. We'll look at some of those verses, but just laying out here some of the concept of what God is looking for. He calls it a body, a temple, a flock, or an assembly, a called out assembly. Now there are Unfortunately, many voices today who, who would uh, speak against the idea of this church unit. We live in a land where individualism is prized. It is held in high regard. Don't you tread on me. You've heard those kind of statements. I will do it my way. The uh, individual rights, and on and on we could go. But is that what God intended for his people, to have that individualistic mindset? And the answer is no. God meant for his people to be in a flock. He meant for them to be adhering one to another, 
to be knit together in love, to esteem each other, to be a functioning body. He talks about being members one of another. He talks about being a flock. And let's just turn to the Gospel of John chapter 10. We have that familiar uh, account of Jesus being the good shepherd. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he go. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. And then if we drop down to verse 16, he says, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. So here's Jesus himself, the head of the church, describing his followers, and he likens them to a flock. Well, so did the prophets. You remember Isaiah spoke of that in chapter 53, where he says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. And then you have there... Uh, the, the picture of the suffering Christ who meant to gather his people together as a flock. And Jesus reemphasizes that. The opposite of being gathered together in a flock, if we, we see it from God's perspective, he sees that as a very dangerous place for his people. The prophets warned about that. They said that my people are scattered upon every high hill, and they're scattered among the nations of the earth. They're scattered throughout the forests and the mountains. And then it talks about the beasts coming and taking them as prey. See, that's God's picture of his people when they are not gathered in a flock. They become the prey for every wild beast that comes around. So here, Jesus, in describing his people, he talks about himself being the shepherd. He's the one who watches over the flock. He keeps them gathered in a sheepfold. There's a fence around that sheepfold. There's a door through which they can go in and out. And the shepherd stands guard at the door. And he doesn't flee when the wolf comes. He chases the wolf away and protects the sheep. The hireling, on the other hand, is the one who doesn't care for the sheep. And he flees when the wolf cometh, but not so the good shepherd. The good shepherd intends for his people to be gathered together in a flock, and it's a place of safety, it's a place of protection, 
And further, it's a place where they can go, as he says, in and out and find pasture. So that's the first and major point in this matter of a glorious church. If we turn back to our text there in Ephesians, I'd like to just note several things there in Ephesians. We read verse 27 where it has this term, a glorious church. And he is working on that church so that they do not have a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now let's turn back to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. He says, According as he hath chosen us in him, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. You notice the similarity there? He's intending for us to be holy and without blame before him in love. And here in chapter 5 he said that the church should be holy and without blemish. Now oftentimes when we read Ephesians chapter 1, at least for myself, I'm reading this in, in chapter 1 as, as referring to an individual, to myself, an in believer. I've been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Hallelujah. And we rejoice in that. We read down through, it says, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. And so on. Verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood. And so on. And we rejoice in our position in Christ, what he has done for us as an individual. And that's all true and good. But note how in chapter 5 he's talking about the church. So it's not just an individual thing, but God uses the church to perfect us. His desire is for us to be without blame, for us to be holy. And it's not, he's not looking just to individuals, but he's looking to a church, a united group of holy people. And there's a, a reason why God wants us in an assembly. We've been talking about this assembly, and I would liken it to plan A. We like plan A, plan B, and plan C. If plan A doesn't work, we go to plan B. Well, in God's economy, plan A is for his believers to be in a body. And plan B, well, there is no plan B. Just refer back to plan A. Unfortunately, many have come up with this concept that they put there as plan B. Plan B is, well, I don't fit into a church. I don't really care to be a part of a church where I've been hasn't worked. 
I'm going to move out here by myself, and I'm going to love God by myself. And it'll just be me, myself, and I, and maybe my family, and we're going to have church. That's plan B. And in the back of their mind, they rationalize that, well, I'm still part of the church of God, you know, the whole church, anywhere in the world. I'm still in God's church, but I don't have a body that I'm a part of. God doesn't have plan B. Now, can God sustain someone? Well, did he sustain John the Baptist when he was in prison? Did he sustain Paul and Silas when they were in prison? Did he sustain Paul when he spent much time in prison? Yes, he did. You say, well, he was by himself. Well, that's true. God has sustained believers in prison. He's sustained them elsewhere. And there are times when a individual or maybe a, a family does go out under the direction and, and um, the, if you will, the authority and the, um, the labors of the church as in a mission place where they may be by themselves for a time. But that's very different from just moving off by yourself and saying, well, I'm going to serve God just, you know, by myself. Because a missionary who goes is under the direction and is sent by the church. That's how it should be. And they are still a part of the church, even though they may for a time labor by themselves. But what I'm talking about is just the idea that we can separate ourselves and go away from the flock, the people of God. The gifts that God gives to us as an individual is intended for the edification of the body, not for personal honor and glory of ourselves, not just to please ourselves, but it is meant to be a benefit to the body of Christ. That, that's what all the gifts are for. And he also meant for the church to be a place where we flourish and grow. And remember, if we're out there by ourselves, we're subject to the beasts of the field, those who come along, the wolves, the, um, the false teachings, the philosophies that are out there. We have not the protection of a body. We don't have shepherds who watch out for our souls. Now, I realize <clears throat> that I'm speaking to a group of youth. You're not the ones who have been organizing churches. You're not the ones who have been shepherding flocks. You're not the ones who maybe even have very much say in where you are and what you're a part of. And so I'm not, I'm not critical of you this morning at all. You may even be the victim of some of these out-of-order situations. And I feel for you. 
But what I am intending to do here is to lift up a standard, to show you a vision, to see what it ought to be. And only until we see what it ought to be can we begin to strive for that goal. And so I see what I'm doing here and what you're sitting here and listening to and taking in is an effort to build the body of Christ after the pattern that he gave us, that it might be a glorious church. I do believe you are a vital part of the church today, mostly in an encouraging and supporting role. Maybe as learners, you might say even, you are still being taught and edified but even in that, you also contribute as members of the body. You have your place and your function, and you are a valued member of that body if you're working for the edification of the church. The members as it has place to work. If you're one of those that finds yourself in an isolated case or a non-functioning group, well, I'm sorry, and we can pray for you. And perhaps for a time God has you there. I'm not recommending that you fight against it, but I am recommending that you embrace the New Testament vision for a church and purpose that when and where you have choices, you're going to work for the profit of the church of Jesus Christ. Okay, let's move on to the second point. We're still talking of structure here. In the body, God hath set the members as it pleased him. And one of the things that God sets in order is he puts in place leaders. There are three main terms that are used in the New Testament for these leaders. He calls them elders. He calls them bishops. And he calls them pastors. And we could put in there a few others such as shepherds with the sense of being under shepherds. But I will speak of them as synonymous, which I think they are in the New Testament as, as far as their office. There are differing functions perhaps between, say, a pastor or, a, or the elders, but they, they share the same office and many, if not most, of the same functions. They are leaders that God has put in place to teach, to instruct. They are there to care for the souls of the people in the flock. Now, <clears throat> You may say, well, I have seen much abuse of this position and these responsibilities. 
And yes, there are many examples of abuses. The remedy for those uh, things that are not right is not to discard teachers, pastors, or elders, but rather to put them in their proper, um, get them in alignment with God's purposes for them. But many people have looked at the abuses and used that as a reason or excuse to cast off any kind of leadership. And they say, well, we don't need, we need no hierarchy in the church. You know, we can just, we function as a brotherhood. And I say, well, that's partially true. Yes, we do function as a brotherhood. Yes, that is certainly a uh, clear teaching in the scripture, but we also have leaders, pastors, and elders. So don't be deceived by those voices that say, well, to correct those abuses, we need to just, you know, set those aside. No, you need pastors. You need bishops. And as I said before, I think those are all synonymous terms. A bishop is an overseer, one who watches over and is much the same function as a pastor, much the same function as an elder, one who is an older man, one who has more experience. And the scripture says that the younger should be subject to the elder. Now, that's an interesting, um, interesting term. If we would look at that passage in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, where that's used, he's talking about elders in a church, but he's also obviously talking about older men. So when he says the younger should be subject to the elder, he's not just talking about linked together, there's not a whole lot of difference. And there's a reason for that. God meant for the older brothers to be the ones who give the direction, who are the, the uh, overseers, the one who watch out for your souls. Part of the reason why they're there is to instruct you and to, um, to help you to grow into the fullness of the stature of Christ. So I think we'll move on just restating point number two is that God meant for there to be elders. This is part of the structure. Well, let's move on to... what I will call how it functions as, as opposed maybe to just its structure is how does a church function, this glorious church. Well, let's look in Ephesians here back to chapter 4. 
Let's just read here in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. I'm going to stop there for a moment uh, before we go on. And just look at what he's saying here thus far. He's getting to the point about the church. He's talking about, in verse 3, keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And mentions that there's one Lord, one faith. And we have, Lord willing, on Friday we'll be looking at earnestly contending for the faith. But note here that he says there is one faith. There is a singular faith. And that is what he expects us to adhere to. It's not just designed after any man's imaginations and ideas, but rather the faith that has been delivered to the saints. But unto every one of us, verse 7, is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And then he talks about Christ having descended to the lower parts of the earth. That means he came down from heaven to where we live. And he then also ascended far above the earth into the heavens and he gave gifts, and here are the gifts. Verse 11, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. These are functions in the body, and we're not going to look at uh, those individual gifts in particular, but we'll note now what he says further, what the intent of these gifts was. They were given for, verse 12, the perfecting, of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive." But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. 
from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Wow. Paul has, by the inspiration of God, has a way of penning these words in such eloquent language that it would take a whole um, commentary to dissect all of the things that he's saying. But the gist of his, of his teaching here is that God gave gifts to the church so that the members of this body might be fitted and perfected and that they could come to their full expression in the Christian life in the context of this body. That's the thought that he's, he's laying out here. And let's just look down in, in a bit more particular here in some of these statements. He says, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry and for the edifying of the body of Christ. And I'll just kind of lump those together here. In that God intends for the people who are in the flock, the, the members of the flock, the sheep, to be growing and maturing. It is assumed when they become a part of the flock that they are, uh, he uses several terms, they're, they're young, they are uh, like children, they need to be instructed, in talking about putting in an elder in his position, he says, not a novice, lest he be lifted up with pride. So there are certain dangers that are a reality for those who are new believers. And I use the term young. Um, I think it's clear from Scripture that that could apply to anybody when they come to the faith. It's not just talking young in age, but praise God. You in your youth have made a choice to become part of his body. And he has adopted you into his family. You are already grafted in. You have become children in the family of God. Now I know that some of you have been believers for a handful of years. And you have become established already in the faith. Some of you, not so long. Maybe only a year or two or maybe even a few months or less. But as you become a part of this body, God intends for you to now learn, to grow, to function, and as it were, expand. As you think of a plant who begins as a small seedling and begins to grow and it's first the blade and then the ear, and after that it's the full corn. There's a, a growth period. You're in that. And I'm still in it. Okay, I've been a Christian for many years. 
but I'm still growing. We together edify one another and we grow. God didn't mean for us to just sit there and warm a bench, but he meant for us to be functioning. So he says that the reason there are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers is so that we are perfected. And if we go back to what our text verse there said, that he wants us to be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That is his perfecting process. And that's why he wants us in a body, so that that process can take place. Verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith. I'm not sure if you're keeping notes. I'm maybe not organized enough here, but you can put down as points here that one of the purposes of the church is for the growth of the members. And especially we're thinking here in the early stages of a of a, be it a new believer or someone in their youth, they are growing and learning. And God meant for the church to be a place where that individual flourishes. There is no plan B for some other spot for you to flourish. The second you could put down here is that he is working for unity in the faith. Verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith. In the early part of the chapter, he mentions that where we are admonished in verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, God meant for there to be unity in the body. Now, some people are even frightened about this because they have a sense where, well, if... Uh, if there has to be unity, then my individual expressions are going to be squashed. Well, yeah. <laughs> they are going to be squashed. However, if we see that rightly, there is a, a, uh, a joy in that because we submit ourselves one to another. And it doesn't really work for a functioning, healthy body for just a few individuals who have a very strong and dominant personality and are very vocal to say their piece. That, that has problems. And the scripture talks to that, you know. Such an one needs to rein in his over-forwardness and recognize that he also must submit himself to the body. So the church shouldn't just be ruled by the most dominant personality. It should be ruled the way that God set it up to be ruled, by appointed elders and, 
And beyond just that, God meant for us to function as a brotherhood and where we admonish one another. Okay. We're back on the point here of unity. God did intend for the church to be united, to speak with one mind and one voice. And my, we could make a whole message just on this one, but just establish this in your mind is one of the principles God meant for there to be unity in the church. Now, there have probably been some abuses in the, in the sense of, of demanding a, a uniformity without having true unity of the spirit, but God meant for there to be one mind and one voice in the church. And he meant for us to be laboring for that. How does he say if he... Uh, if you bite and devour, or um, if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. God didn't mean for the church to be biting and devouring. He meant for them to be at peace among themselves. He meant for there to be a united heart and mind, to be To be loving members one of another. You know where there's peace, there's not arguing and fighting and yelling and, and uh, put-downs and, and criticisms. There's edification. There's peace. There's joy. There's admonition, yes, sometimes even reproof. But it's all part of functioning in the body. Now to think of the prophet speaking of the time to come when he says that uh, in that kingdom that men will beat their swords into plowshares. And they will not learn war anymore. Well, do you realize that God meant for the church to be that example today in this, this side of eternity? The church becomes that picture of people who have beaten their swords into plowshares. And they won't learn war anymore. Well, if God doesn't want war between nations, how much less does he want it in the church? between brothers. We beat our swords into plowshares. We live in peace one with another. And we who used to be wolves now have been turned into lambs, if I can use that, that picture. So God intended for there to be unity in the church. Well, we must move on. He says uh, of the knowledge of the Son of God, God, verse 13 there, 
unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God is working to make us after the likeness of Christ. That doesn't happen when we're out by ourselves. It happens in a body. We are members one of another and we exhort one another and, and by, both by example and by admonition we can help shape one another. God calls us to be perfect, and he uses that term here, unto a perfect man. And you may say, well, I don't see a whole lot of perfection yet. Well, God's working on that. He intends for us to grow and mature. And there is a sense in which, for example, a baby is perfect in their construction and yet they're not mature. They have not yet come to perfection in the sense of it coming to maturity. That is the concept. Um, that members in the church, when you're born again and become a part of the body, you have been perfected in Christ. Christ sees you as perfectly formed in that sense that you have functioning parts and members, but they have not yet come to maturity. That's, that's what God wants for us in the church to become a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then he says that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro. So there he contrasts the mature man with the child. And so another point I would uh, put down here for this glorious church. This glorious church becomes a refuge or a, a protection from deception. A protection from deception. As you begin in your Christian life, you are much more vulnerable to false ideas, to false uh, teachers or concepts. And, and that's, not a, uh, that's not a reproach. It's just simply a fact. All of us start out that way. We are more vulnerable to false teachings and false uh, ideas, and, and he clearly points that out here, carried about with every wind of doctrine. And slight of men, that slight of men means the idea of trickery, making it appear to be something that it's not. Um, and we talk about sleight of hand tricks where somebody... Um, they call it magician maybe, and I'm not advocating this at all, but, you know, he pulls things out of a hat or he 
puts a ball in his hand and and uh, he lays a ball there and squeezes it and rubs his hands and all once it's gone, you know. And those are sleight of hand tricks. They are meant to deceive your eyes. And he is doing something subtly that you don't see to deceive you. And you think some other power is at work here because it looks strange. That's the idea of the slight of men, deceptive terms, and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. If we look at the whole of Scripture, though, and, and consider this concept of men who are deceptive, they are not what they appear. I think we need to recognize that most of those men who are lying in wait and cunning craftiness, they themselves are deceived. In other words, they, it's not like they're thinking that they're going to snare you. They actually, in their mind, they think they have a better way. And by that convincing argument, they may deceive you. Well, beware, beware of those who profess to have some new way. And when it comes to this matter of the church and what a glorious church looks like, there are, there are many false ideas out there. But we don't need a new way to do church. You may hear that sometimes. We, we're in a new era. We have a new, new way. We've discovered or re rediscovered church. Those are some of the concepts you'll hear out there. And then there's, they'll throw all kinds of ideas out there. Well, we don't need a new way to do church. Maybe rediscovered, but rediscovered only in the sense that we go back to the original what Christ actually intended. If that's what we mean, then fine. But let's not be deceived by some new idea or new concept of how to do church. Okay. I'm not sure that I'm even covering all of my points here, but I'd like to move now to consider... some of the overall purpose for the church. What is God's purpose? We've looked at its structure. We've looked at its, some of its function. And what is the purpose? Now, I know that some of the other points we made are uh, all entwined there. But I'd like to just say that in the big picture, God is looking for a group of people who will demonstrate what his kingdom looks like. If I would put it in a nutshell, that's how I would say it. God is looking for a group of people who will demonstrate what his kingdom looks like. If you consider all the implications then that arise from that 
God is working in us. He is bringing us to perfection. He is desiring that we mature in Christ. He is desiring that we have a glorious church so that he can show both to the unbelievers and to the spirit world a visible representation of what the kingdom of God looks like. Paul talked about being made a spectacle to the world and to angels. You realize that is God's intent for the church, is to become a spectacle to the world and to angels. Now don't think that the world is going to be necessarily pleased with that picture. And don't think for a minute that Satan is going to be pleased with that picture either. He will do all he can to destroy that. And that's why he comes in to try by any means, by subtle means, by uh, outward roarings, or even by an angel of light to try and subvert that work of God. But God meant for the church, and, and we could... We can think of some of the passages that um, speak about us as individuals. And it's true that we as individual believers become a representation of the faith, but united together, we become a demonstration of what God does, what his kingdom looks like, what his glorious work in the hearts of men is. Not just as an individual, but as a group. He says, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one for another. And you can't clearly demonstrate that if you're out there by yourself and think that's okay, or that you're having church, or that you've somehow found plan B. Plan A is for you to be plugged into a local church body, functioning as a member. So, out of that demonstration of God's power, that becomes the testimony that goes forth into all the earth by means of evangelism and the preaching of the gospel, mission endeavors, all of them are an outgrowth or a a, an outflow of the demonstration of God's power in the life of the church. Now that's a big mouthful. I mean, now we're talking some meat of the Christian life. We're not talking about just an individual responsibility you have. We're lifting up a picture of what God is intending. He wants a church, the glorious church. Think about the word glorious for a moment. What does glorious mean? And in whose eyes is it glorious? Well, I think there's uh, multiple um, maybe aspects of this glorious. For example, it says that he might present it to himself a glorious church. 
Well, that immediately gives us the picture of perhaps in eternity or where the church is united to Christ at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. And certainly that's part of it. He is wanting to gather together a group of people who are without blemish for that great marriage. But it's also true that we today are a representation of what that looks like. No, we haven't been glorified in the sense that we have received a new bodies and that we've been translated into that other realm, but we today are the body of Christ. And he is perfecting us. He is making us glorious. For what purpose? So that he might demonstrate what his church and his people, his kingdom looks like in the earth. It becomes a testimony to men and to angels. And just mark it down, that's why Satan hates the church so much. Because he knows it's God's glorious power manifested in the lives and hearts of men. That's what this glorious church is about. We could take any of these um, thoughts as, as to what a believer should look like and we can apply it to ourselves individually. That is true. But it also has its expression in the whole body of Christ. We're looking at the purpose and one, um, one more I'd like to mention here in chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 20 through 22. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. The church is meant to be a habitation of God. habitation of God. You know, we can turn to the passages there in 1 Corinthians 6 or 2 Corinthians chapter 6 where it talks about being the temple of God. Our body, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, that you are not your own, you're bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit. But he also uses the very same metaphor. We, as the church, are the temple of the living God. And he intends for the church to be the habitation of God. Now doesn't that make it glorious? Yes. He is 
perfecting us that we might become the habitation of God through the Spirit. Then in that whole picture, again, it's to represent what the kingdom of God looks like here among men. Well, thank you very much for your attention. I must close with that. Lord bless.